Well, good morning, good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18. As you turn there, if you pay careful attention week after week, you probably remember that you turned there last week. And that's true. That's true. Our brother Matt last week uh, rooted us in, in uh, Leviticus 18 verses 1 to 5, and he talked to us about holiness in general. Because you see, up to this point in the book of Leviticus, it's really been dealing with the tabernacle, with the priesthood, with the sacrifices. And if Leviticus ended at the end of chapter 17, you might even be tempted to think that the book of Leviticus and holiness in general is reserved for the tabernacle complex. What we find as we turn to chapter 18 and move forward is that holiness overflows. And that's what our brother Matt was telling us last week. That holiness is not something that we do in our gatherings on Sunday morning. Holiness is the life that we've been called to, and it reaches into every aspect of who we are and what we do. He had this great quote that he used from Paul David Tripp, which Matt found. I didn't find this, but I heard Matt say it, and I thought it was so good I want to repeat it. So he describes holiness this way. This is Paul David Tripp. You have been set apart by God's grace for God's purpose. Your allegiance is no longer to the kingdom of your success and happiness, but to the progress of his kingdom of glory and grace. And where do you do this? This is a great question. Where do you do this? You do this wherever you are, whomever you're with, and in whatever you're doing. I think that's so helpful for us to wrap our minds around. What we're learning here of, of the the. Israelites, it applies to us. We are a kingdom of priests. We are called to be set apart and holy. And the way that we live those holy lives is not something reserved for this gathering on Sunday mornings. It is to be our way of life. It is to touch into every aspect of our lives and our conduct. And so that's what what our brother Matt shared last week. But then what we find as we continue reading in Leviticus 18 is that that holiness that we're called to is applied to the area of our sexuality. And so that's what we're going to be dealing with today. That's what Leviticus 18 is all about. So I invite you to turn there now and hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. We're going to read the whole text, so I'm going to move a little bit quicker through this text. Hear now God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you live. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. I have to pause there because he's going to use that phrase, uncover nakedness, so many times in this text. And that is a a euphemism for, for sexual intimacy. So you're going to hear that time and again. You shall not uncover the nakedness of, of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. 
You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family since she's your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She's your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She's your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name, profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all of these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them, shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were promised before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know how many sermons you've sat through through Leviticus 18, but this is my first, and it's a, it's a heavy text. And before we begin to unpack and apply this text, I want to preemptively address the objection that we often face when we start to look to the book of Leviticus and we begin to apply its principles. Here's the objection. Doesn't the New Testament override these outdated laws? Have you heard that objection before? Maybe it's phrased differently. Maybe they say, why would, you, why would you apply what the Old Testament says here, and yet you allow yourselves to eat shellfish, and you wear polyester pants? Right? You've probably heard that objection, right? How do you decide how these things apply? Well, we have to move quickly this morning, so I have to answer this briefly. But in short, Jesus told us on the Sermon on the Mount, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Meaning Jesus didn't come to, to laugh at what God commanded us. He didn't come to throw it into the wastebasket. He came to fulfill what it pointed forward to. So how do we apply that to say you know, God's rules about our diet or the mixed fabrics? Jesus came to show us the purpose of the law. And the purpose of those laws was to set apart God's people as different from the world. Right? So you don't mix up different fabrics together. Why is that? Does that displease God? No, but it was an object lesson for the Israelites to say, in the same way, so you should not mix yourselves with the nations. And your diet should look different from the nations. You're a set-apart people. That was the, the purpose of the law. 
the elementary lesson, like building blocks, teaching them a lesson. But then, what does Jesus do with that lesson in the New Testament? Mark 7, verses 18 to 20. Jesus says to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that what goes ever, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark, just in case we missed it, Mark leans in and says, Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So Jesus, he's got these building blocks, but he's like, look, you, you've got these building blocks, but you missed the lesson entirely. It's not that the food made you unclean. It's, actually, it's what comes out of you that shows whether or not you're clean. So you've missed the purpose of the food. Yeah, all food is clean, but you need to think about what's coming out of you. And so he does the same thing with the ceremonial law, right? All the ceremonial law talking about the temple and the tabernacle, talking about the priests, talking about the sacrifices. Jesus didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Which is why he revealed that he is the temple. He is the place where God's people meet with God. And he revealed that he is the priest. He is the mediator who intercedes on behalf of the people to the Heavenly Father. And he revealed that he is the sacrifice. You don't need to bring goats to worship anymore because Jesus is the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world, right? Not abolishing, fulfilling. But here's the question. How then do we apply that principle to the the moral law, right? These commands that reveal how, how God wants us to conduct ourselves and live our lives. Well, Jesus had plenty of opportunities to take the moral law and, you know, throw it in the waste bin, but that's not what he did. He came to fulfill it. He says, look at my life. I have lived out the obedience that the law requires of to perfection. And then what he does is rather than discarding it, he presses the law in deeper and he makes greater demands because he says, now we have the Holy Spirit and so we're able to live righteously. So for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus do with this moral law? He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, right? That was what the law said. You look at Leviticus 18, right? You can't sleep with your, your father's wife or with the animals. You've heard it said you can't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus is, is leaning in closer, pressing in deeper, saying this is God's calling for your lives. We are called to be the holiness people. We still are the kingdom of priests, the holy nation. We're still called to live in such a way that we resemble the goodness and the glory of God. Therefore, we lean into this and we say, yes, God's word still applies. Yes, we can still read the book of Leviticus and and learn about God's moral law and apply it to our lives. That's what we're learning here. So no, the Old Testament does not override the outdated laws. Instead, it applies them more forcefully and causes us to depend more urgently on the transformative grace of God. Now, I don't like starting with a a disclaimer, but I do feel like that's a big enough uh, obstacle that we needed to address it off the top. But therefore, having having dealt with that, now we want to lean in expectantly because we know that there are no outdated or irrelevant books in all the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. So this morning, we're going to lean in. We're going to ask the question, what does the law teach us about sexuality? Well, first, the law teaches us that our bodies are not our own. So Matt mentioned last week that as we pursue holiness, Old Testament and New, as we pursue holiness, we don't do it in an attempt to earn God's love. 
right? We do it in a response to God's love. That is the most elementary lesson in all the Bible. In fact, if you miss that lesson, then you've, you've lost Christianity, right? All of our obedience, all of our holiness needs to flow out of gratitude. And if we ever untether our obedience from our understanding of God's unmerited, amazing grace, then this turns into duty and obligation and legalism and Pharisaism. And you've probably met those people before. You've probably been those people before. When we're obeying God to try and merit some kind of response from Him, it turns into something very gross, something that is not Christianity. But no, we obey because of what God has already done for us. We respond to His grace. That is true here in this passage. God says, speak to the people of Israel. Right Before any commands, He says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Now that's a loaded phrase. It's not as if God was like, hey, they might forget who I am, so remind them who's talking to them. No, I am the Lord your God meant something to the people of Israel. That was like the gospel phrase. It's the same way for a Christian. You could say, hey, before you, before you give the commandments to your church in Aurelia, you tell them, it is finished. Right? That is a loaded phrase for us. Doesn't that remind us of the, the gospel? Well, that's what he's doing here. He says, I am the Lord your God. You remind them of that. And immediately the Israelites go back to their time in Egypt when they were slaves and God mercifully picked them up and brought them out of slavery. Immediately their minds go back to the Red Sea where they, just, they had just walked across on dry land and the waves crashed over their enemies. Immediately their minds go back to Mount Zion where they've got the, Mount Sinai, sorry, with the crashing thunder and Moses comes down with the commandments and God makes them his people and, and sends them out as his nation. God says, before you give many of the commandments, you remind them, I am the Lord your God. Right? Remind them, I saved them, I set them apart, I purchased them out of slavery to make them a, a holy people. One commentator notes, in this very short formula, the Israelites were reminded constantly of who they were and of whom they served. So we need to see that. Before we, we think about this life that he's called us to, we need to remember who we are and whom we serve. Because that's where the answer is found to this question that we're going to face. Your neighbor's asking this question. They're asking, why on earth would you allow God to speak into your sexuality? That is the question. Your kids, as they get into their teens and they start to deal with some rebellion, that's the question. Why on earth would you allow this book to to dictate, to correct feelings that you really earnestly feel? And why would you allow this to dictate things that go on behind closed doors? Why would you ever do it? That's the question. Here's the answer. Because I belong to Him. I belong to Him. He purchased me at great cost to Himself. He is the Lord my God. He loves me. He knows me. He knows me better than anyone else in the world. He knows what's best for me. He's called me to trust and honor Him in every area of my life. As the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our bodies are not our own. Now, of course, if you're talking to your neighbor, they're taken aback by this. Right? That's even more offensive than the idea that you would allow God to speak into your sexuality. You are not your own, they'd say. 
like your body is not your own. You don't have autonomy. You don't have the freedom. And we say no. <laughs> but here's the, here's the crazy thing. It's actually good news that my body is not my own. It belongs to my heavenly Father. And He is so much wiser than I am. And He loves me. He knows what is best and right. And that's the same here in the Old Testament. Right? As we read this list of commands, we, first we read in verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. And if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Listen, before we go further today, I want to say, and I hear this, every single person in this room, in one way or another, struggles with desires that would take them outside of God's boundaries for our sexuality. Every single person in this room. Some of us are legitimately, deeply attracted to people of the same sex. And you didn't choose that. You wish you didn't feel that way, but that is a very real pull in your heart. Some of us are deeply addicted to pornography. And we don't want to go back there, and we hate that we do, but our thoughts go there, and it is a very real battle. Some of us love our spouse, we're faithful to our spouse, and yet every once in a while our mind takes us to thinking about someone else. And we hate that, because we know that's not God's plan for us. But it's a real struggle. Some of us feel drawn towards people that we shouldn't be drawn towards. We want to have a relationship with that unbeliever, Maybe we're drawn even to somebody else's spouse. Very real temptations and desires. And there's not a single person in this room who doesn't in one form or another struggle with those desires. I've often spoken to people who feel like their sexual temptations are unique. As if they're the only person in the community who feels pulled outside of God's boundaries. And they feel like this is an embarrassing burden that they're the only one who has to bear. Listen, you are not alone. God calls every one of us in this room to trust his plan more than we trust our feelings. And that can be scary. That can be costly. But I want you to hear before we go a step further, it is worth it. I promise you, it is worth it. The end result of his plan for your life is better than the result of of this culture's plan for your life or even of your own feelings, your own plan for your life. His way leads to life, I promise you. To be a follower of Christ is to believe that. And to place your life willingly and joyfully into His his hands. Because your body's not your own. That's the first thing we learn here. Second, the law teaches us that our distinctiveness is by design. So as you read through the book of Leviticus, but here in chapter 18 particularly, you're going to discover this repeated phrase. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. That's how this whole passage starts. Remember, he says, you're not going to live like the Egyptians in the place that you just came out of, and you won't live like the Canaanites in the land you're going into. You won't live like them. Seven times in this short chapter, he uses that phrase. God's saying to his people, the world practices sexuality this way, but you're going to practice sexuality that way, and it's going to be different. And that's the point. The Israelites were called to be a kingdom of priests. Well, who are the priests? The priests are the set-apart ones. Therefore, if we are a kingdom of priests, then it should be no surprise that God calls us to a lifestyle that sets us apart from the ways of the world. That's part of the job description. So the sexuality of the Israelites was supposed to be distinct and different from the nations that they were going to be living in and amongst And in the same way, our lives are to be distinct and different from the world. 
because the way that we practice sexuality and the way that we do marriage and commitment and love preaches a sermon to the world around us. The apostle said that to the church in Ephesus. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. But I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says, your marriage is preaching a sermon to the outside world. Now, don't be surprised when the sermon that your marriage is preaching is different than the sermon that your neighbor's marriage is preaching. It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be different. Lean into that. Let the nation see and marvel at the goodness of a society where one man marries one woman and they enjoy each other in a covenant for a lifetime. The culture is sacrificing children on the altar of autonomy and choice. Let them see the fruitfulness of a people who love and value and delight in children. Right? Let us be the adoption and the foster and the procreation people delighting in God's gift. Let us have homes that are safe and secure, bound by covenant and glorifying God. Because it's good. It is good. God's plan. It is life-giving. He didn't give us these commandments to rob us of joy. He really, truly, genuinely knows what's best for us. Now, for the first time in a long time, we feel very different as Christians in this culture. And that's probably going to progress as the days move forward. Don't be alarmed by that. Here's what I want you to hear. Our distinctiveness is by design. That was always part of the plan. We were always supposed to look different in this regard. So be different. Be salt. Be light in the world. Next, the law teaches us that our challenges are not unique. Now, sometimes we speak as if 21st century North American culture is the most sexually progressive culture in the history of the world. And I just want to remind you this morning, it's not. The urge to throw off any and all sexual restraint didn't come because of the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or the Internet. That came because of sinful hearts, and those have been around for a very, very long time. Think about this passage that we just read. Think about all of these prohibitions that he throws out. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Why did he have to say that? Because in the culture, people were doing those things. That was a very sexually progressive culture that they were moving into. And sometimes we read this list and it feels too obscure to even be relevant. Like, for example, verse 9. Let me read it again. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. I don't know about you, but I read that verse and that just feels basic. It feels like it doesn't need to be said, right? Don't be intimate with your sister. It feels like, did God really have to lay that out? Yes, yes, he did. Right now in our culture, there's this show and it's a popular show called New Amsterdam. And, and New Amsterdam is a show that's trying to put forward this sexually progressive idea. It's teaching our, our young ones. And there's an episode in this show when a young couple comes to the psychiatrist and they're discouraged because they had been so happy. They'd been together for a long time. They were engaged to be married. But then something happened. They were both orphans and they had met by circumstance. But when they got their DNA test, they realized, she's my sister, he's my brother. And so the whole episode is dealing with the drama. What do they do? Now, over the course of the episode, 
It's written in such a way that you find yourself rooting for this brother and sister. And then the psychiatrist says, well, obviously you're going to need to use birth control. You're going to need to make sure that you're not hurting anybody. But I see no reason why these legitimate feelings should be suppressed. And then the, the episode ends with this big moral. Go ahead. Sleep with your sister. That's the moral of the episode. That is why this verse is in the Bible. God says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. God is saying, it doesn't matter whose house she grew up in, she's your sister. Are you crazy? Don't do that. We need these instructions. Because left to our own devices, if, if choice and desire and autonomy are the driving force in our culture, we will move into all kinds of depravity and we'll justify it. And we'll watch it in our primetime television and celebrate it in our award-winning shows. There's nothing new under the sun. We're not sexually progressive. We are sexually regressive. Right? We're moving backwards. And in the years to come, Sexual boundaries are going to be knocked down so fast our heads are going to spin. And here's, I want to pass you through this. In those moments, we're going to be tempted to feel like we're in uncharted waters. But we aren't. The church has been there. The church has done that. Our mission remains the same. And the murkier it gets out there, the more compelling our witness can be in here. See, our culture is knocking down every fence and loving it. Right, that's, if I could summarize the last five years of our culture, that's it. Knocking down every fence and loving it. Because knocking down fences is fun. Until you realize that your little kids are playing out in the intersection, and then you look back and you see that a, a predator is looking through the window of your daughter, and then you realize this fence has actually served a purpose, and we shouldn't have knocked them all down. We're heading into tumultuous days where the consequences will be felt. And in those days, as people are looking for something secure, something safe to raise their family in, something life-giving, something built by a heavenly Father who knows what's best for us, let them find it here. Let them find it here. Let us not be hiding the light under a bushel, but let's be living out loud. Yes, it looks different, but there's nothing new under the sun. It looked different then, and it will look different 100 years from now, so let's shine it out. Our God is wise and good, and he loves us. He's got a plan that is best for us. So we're not going to be intimidated by the old waves of recklessness masquerading as new waves of progress. We know how the story ends. However, that leads us to the next lesson that the law teaches us about sexuality, and it's this. Our silence is killing us. So 30 years ago, mom and dad could probably get away with avoiding the birds and the bees conversation because little Timmy was going to go to a grade 8 gym class and he was going to hear some things that you would agree with and the only illicit images he might ever encounter were on a magazine at his cousin's house under the mattress but you could just call the uncle and say hey shred that magazine and then it shredded and then little Timmy is safe right and I suspect out of that safety who knows where it came from but a, a prudishness developed in the church where we were afraid to talk about sexuality. We treated it as something that the Christians didn't ever speak about. And, and maybe some of you feel that today. And if that's you, and if you do feel that, can you just look down again at Leviticus 18? God said this. 
God spoke to Moses. He said, say thus to my people. And then he, he walked through intentionally, graphically, walking through all of these challenges that they're going to be facing as they go into this sexually promiscuous culture. God spoke about this. Our Heavenly Father, who is about to send His little ones into this culture of confusion, spoke intentionally, specifically, about the sexual temptations that they were going to face. Do you see that? I'm not making this up. Therefore, as a father, I'm going to disregard the concerns of whatever prudish culture we once had in the church. I'm going to disregard that, and I'm going to follow the example of my heavenly father. Because he set an example for us in this text. I'm going to speak to my kids intentionally and specifically about the temptations that they're going to face in this world. Because they're going to face them. Every kid with a smartphone has untraceable backdoor access to every pornography shop in the world. And he or she doesn't even need to go looking for it. It's looking for him. That's nothing compared to the danger of simply sending your kids to school. I would have never thought to say this five to ten years ago, but I can't not say it now. If your kids are in the public school system, parents, you have an obligation to be up to speed on the sex education curriculum that they're learning today. You have an obligation to go a step further and be up to speed on the agenda behind that curriculum because it's overt. Our kids are not simply being educated. They're being openly and unapologetically shaped and groomed. And when they sit in that and then they come home and then they turn on New Amsterdam and they're watching these things and they're realizing there's a whole worldview here that, that mom and dad didn't even have their fingers on. Now, if we are silent, we never speak into that, we're putting our kids in a very dangerous place. Therefore, we need to get, get back into that old mindset. Not the old mindset of prudish. I mean the old, old Leviticus 18 old mindset that speaks intentionally and clearly to our little ones about the world that we're growing up in. So here's the challenge. And I, again, I know I'm speaking to parents in this moment. And I apologize, but this is where this applies very specifically today. Parents, or future parents, what kinds of questions are your kids asking as they navigate through these waters? What kind of questions are they too afraid to ask you? What kind of questions are they going to be asking three years from now, four years from now? It is upon you to discern what those questions are and to get ahead of them and to discuss them at the dinner table and to cultivate a a culture in your house where they are safe to talk to those th- about those things to you. My, my friend Timmy wants me to call him Teresa. How do I handle that? He's my friend. I love him. What do I do? The rest of my friends, mom, are attracted to girls, but I'm attracted to boys. And I don't know what to do with that. My teacher said I should lean in and celebrate that, but I don't know what to do. The kids at school are sending inappropriate pictures of themselves on their phones. They've got this app, and I'm the only one not doing it. And it's hard to resist. Mom, what do I do? Shame on us if we force our kids to navigate through all of these challenges on their own simply because we're afraid of feeling awkward. That's not the example set before us in God's Word. And our silence is killing us. We need to be proactive because, finally, the law teaches us that our disobedience will destroy us. 
So we began in verses 1 to 5 making the positive argument that God's way is good because it is. And it leads to life because it does. That's where he begins. But if you look closely at the flow of this text, you see after verse 5, he makes a negative argument. And he puts forward the warning that this road is going to lead to destruction. And he's overt with that. He's clear with that. Meaning God understands that the carrot is effective and so too is the stick. And wisdom knows how to use both at the right time. And he ends with a stick here. Right in verse 26, he says, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. God says, if you throw caution to the wind, and you disregard my commands for sexuality, and you just go about and do this in your own way, and you do it just like the nations, here's how it ends. It ends with you vomited out of the land. And in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how when when a culture, when a nation, so disregards God's order that they just throw his commands for sexuality aside and, and, and choose the raunchiest, the most that just try to pursue pleasure in every avenue. When we go that route, Romans 1 says, we're right on the cusp of of ruin. And and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you can't be those people. You can't be those people. You see how that story ends, right? The Canaanites have been those people. And you're watching now how that story ends. Don't you fall into that trap. The world tells us that joy and life are waiting for us on the other side of God's boundary. The devil whispers in our ear, did God really say? And subtly we find ourselves raising those questions in our own hearts. And here, so let me just be, I want to be compassionate because some of us do feel this in our hearts and it, found, it sounds very compelling. Right, you hear that voice in your head saying, if God didn't want you to do this, then why is God allowing you to feel this? And that's very tempting and very confusing. And suddenly that fence looks a little bit smaller. And the grass looks a little bit greener on the other side. But God's word is clear here, so I want to be clear here as well. If you buy the lie and you jump the fence looking for joy, you won't find it. There's only ruin on the other side of that fence. There's no life there. And I know that sounds unloving, but it would actually be unloving not to say I know that because God said it and God is love. Nobody loves you like he does. And he said it. He's more concerned about your eternal joy than he is about your present happiness. He loves you too much to allow you to go down that road without first giving you a clear and urgent warning. So here's here's the piece. Do you trust him? I mean, ultimately, that's what this is about. Do you trust him? It's like, you know, my kids, I always wanted to put things in the socket and the wall. And I say, don't put things in the socket on the wall. (laughs) And they think dad's withholding. They think dad's trying to rob them of joy. And of course, we know bad things happen when you put things in the socket on the wall. Right? But that's, that's laughable, right? That's an obvious illustration. God is perfectly wise. He, he sees your life. He sees your eternity. This life you're living is a speck. It's a dot. And God says, trust me in this. Don't jump that fence. 
And we say, well, but why? And but how? But here are my arguments for why. I could actually jump on the fence and maybe if I did this with the word of God, I could probably... And God says, no, don't do it. And so what the word does this morning, what the spirit does, what I want to do this morning is just put before you. I don't want to make some logical argument for why you should or you shouldn't. Here's the argument. Your heavenly father who loves you said, don't. So the question really is, do you trust him? Do you genuinely believe that he loves you? Do you genuinely believe that his plan for you is better than satisfying every one of those desires that you really truly feel? Do you genuinely believe that he has got a road that is going to lead to eternal joy and glory? And this road, while it might lead to some temporary pleasures, is going to ultimately leave you unsatisfied. That's the question. That's what's going to keep you in the boundaries, right? No no shaming is going to keep you in the boundaries. No self-flagellation. What's going to keep you in the boundaries is looking to Christ and saying, He is enough. If every desire inside of me pulls me this way, I'm going to go that way because He is enough. And if these desires never change, He is enough. If every morning I wake up and I have to battle with my addiction to pornography, I'll do it because I love Him. He's enough. And if every day I feel myself drawn towards same-sex attraction and I can't pursue that, he's enough. And if every day I find myself, my mind going off to different people who aren't my spouse, I'm going to silence that. He's enough. I trust him. The Canaanites did sex differently. It ended in disaster. The Canadians do sex differently. It's going to end in disaster. But God has called us to be distinct. And he purchased us out of slavery with the blood of his son washed us and he's commissioning us now to go into the world and to trust him over and above our culture over and above our opinions even over and above our feelings here's where i want to conclude maybe you're here today and you were looking at pornography just this week and you feel dirty and you feel trapped Maybe you're here today and you're in a dating relationship and you know you've, you've crossed the boundary and you both know better and you're wondering why you're even here. Or maybe you feel strong same-sex attraction and you are so tempted to just give in. Maybe you've deviated in any other number of ways from God's good design and you don't know what to do. I want to just speak to you The Apostle Paul wrote to a church that had similar desires. Like I said, this isn't novel, right? This is the cost of discipleship. Jesus didn't say it would be easy. He said, take up your cross, follow me. Die to yourself and your desires and follow me. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth grappling with with the same temptations. And he said to them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want to pause there and I want to make sure you hear that because I love you. You need to hear that. God's word is crystal clear. If you do choose to go down that road, and you choose to follow that desire, and you say, I know what God says, but I want this. 
He says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the cost. That, that is the cost. You should know the cost as you head in. Well, let's, let's not mince words. That is the cost. Everything costs something, and you are laying down an eternal life of glory if you choose to go down that road. However, Paul goes on to say in the very next verse, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hear this. The church is not, never has been, never will be until glory. The church is not a museum for perfect people. It is a hospital for sick, recovering people. Full of recovering hypocrites. Rehabilitating addicts. Resuscitated dead people. Every single one of us was at one time dead in our sins. Every single one of us has a story of failure and rebellion that makes us want to weep. Every single one of us was unfit for service, unworthy of redemption, and unlovable in our best estimation. Such were some of you, Paul says. But God. He didn't leave us there, did he? We were washed. We were washed. We're going to celebrate that today as we come to the Lord's table. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God's unfathomable love caused him to send his own son to die for our sin, to wash us clean with the blood of Christ. We were washed so that we could be redeemed. And he says, and you were sanctified. Do you know what that means? It means he made us holy. Hear that today, you who were looking at porn this week. He has made you holy. If you have turned from your sin and you've placed your trust in Christ, you are in this moment holy. He sanctified you. He justified you. Do you know what that means? It means that you're no longer guilty in God's eyes. If you've repented of your sin and placed your trust in Christ, even though you feel guilty and condemned, can I tell you this morning? You're forgiven. Such were some of you, Paul says. Such were all of us. Your identity is not found in who you're attracted to. Your identity is not found in how you feel. Your identity is not found in what you've done. You are who your heavenly Father says you are. And if you've confessed your sin, he says, you're clean. You've placed your trust in Christ. He says, you are holy. If you've surrendered your life to him, he says, you are justified. And that is where life is found. Not in surrendering to your lust, not in jumping the fence, Fulfillment and joy and everlasting life are found in submitting yourself to the rule and reign of your heavenly Father who loves you so much. The world calls that hate speech. We call it gospel. It is the good news that we cling to and that we're going to celebrate today at the table. Let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, pray that we would hear today from your word what we should hear. And I'm mindful of the fact that that people often get in the way. Um, And I'm a people. And I don't want to get in the way this morning of, of what you would speak to your church. So God, where I've been clumsy, I thank you that your spirit is never clumsy. And where I've missed things, Lord, I thank you that your word just presses in deep where we lack. And God, I just pray for every one of the men and women, boys and girls who are in the room today. 
Not that, not that you would build a higher fence for us that we wouldn't be able to scale. Lord, and we know there's wisdom in, in putting blockers on our phones and accountability. Lord, we know that all of that is wise. And yet, ultimately, what we need is not a higher fence, but a greater love and trust to stay within the lines. That we would see that true life is found right at the center. God, we confess we're often dipping our toes a little further. And we repent of that, Father. I pray for your people today. Uh, Lord, I know that the enemy is a deceiver. He lies to us. And, and he's good at what he does. And there are probably some people sitting here right now who just have the lies of the evil one, whispering, speaking, shouting in their ears, saying, you can't trust God. See, here, here God goes again, trying to suppress you, trying to, trying to rob you of the joy I made you for. God, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Would you silence it in this moment? And would your spirit speak so loudly? Jesus came to set us free. Came to give us life. And life is so much more than sexuality. It's so much more. Our identity is so much more than who we're attracted to. God, I pray that we would embrace a, a wider vision of humanity, God. That we would go into the world proclaiming a, a broader scope of who you've saved us and made us to be. And God, help us to do it with compassion. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who feels like they can't confess their sin to a brother because they don't feel safe. Lord, I just pray against that in Jesus' name. Whatever the temptations are that we face, whatever the desires in our heart that pull us away, as we heard last week, holiness happens in community. God, we need each other. We need to lean on each other. We need to be open. And God, if we've created a culture where certain sins are not, people don't feel comfortable sharing that they're struggling, God, I pray against that culture. I pray that this would be a place where we can walk together through whatever storm because we want to look like Christ. So Lord, I pray for that. I pray for freedom in that. Lord, I pray for freedom from addiction. God, I, I pray in Jesus' name for freedom from addiction today. I pray that people today, as we come and as we partake of the, the blood and the body, that we would see the cost and that our love for you would surpass our love for all of the cheap escapes that the world has to offer. And I pray all of this in Jesus' mighty saving name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?